The Old Testament reading is from Nehemiah 1, 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you and good to be back in the pulpit after uh, three weeks break. So thank you for that. We're really grateful to have a break and to do some vacation time as well as just take a break from preaching. Uh, You may be grateful for that as well. Uh, I don't need to know that. Uh, You can keep that to yourself. But um, yeah, it's great to um, be back with you and we're going to continue the series that we started this summer, uh, The Great Prayers of the Bible, and we're going to look at the one uh, that Ann just read for us. And as we do, as we begin to do that, let me pray for us. Father, I pray uh, that you would guide us that you would usher us into your presence and in your presence see a vision for a different way of life, a way of life that is filled with adventure, a way of life that is filled with sacrifice, and a way of life that is promised uh, that you will be with us, that you will love us, that you will keep hold of us. And I pray that through each of us individually as well as this church that you would use us in a way that would establish a legacy for your name as well as for ours, that we would be able to look back on a life well lived. And Father, I pray that you would guide us in that and let us see that you are always with us and always in love with us and always ready to comfort and embrace us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Walls have been a big part of our national conversation for about the last year. How big, how high, who's going to pay for it, and whether 
walls or bridges represent the basic orientation of the Christian faith. Well, Jesus was constantly pushing his followers to build bridges with people, all kinds of people, but the royal city, his city, did in fact have a wall, or at least it it did have a wall. We see here in Nehemiah that the wall no longer is standing, that it had been torn down. And this is really important because walls in the ancient world not only kept enemies out and kept wild animals out at night, but they were tremendously symbolic. They were a sign of a thriving city, that this city mattered, that it had wealth, that it had something to protect. But much more than that, for God's people, it was a sign of His presence and His blessing. And so when Nehemiah gets word that Jerusalem's walls still lie in ruin, he weeps. In fact, he mourns and he fasts and he prays. Now, maybe this sort of response seems a little extreme. So imagine with me for a moment, if you're old enough, think about where you were on 9-11. There were 3,000 more or less lives that were lost. There were billions of dollars of damage in lower Manhattan. But for many people, it was far more significant that that is the symbolic defeat that that represented, that it made Americans for the first time in a long time feel vulnerable. Our national psyche, our self-understanding was deeply wounded on 9-11. Now, Nehemiah is told by Hanani that the people in Jerusalem are suffering not only physical vulnerability for the lack of a wall, but they are suffering disgrace. Nehemiah is told because he's an important guy. He's the cupbearer to the king, which doesn't sound like much, but in the ancient world, this is a really exalted position in the king's cabinet. It's a close council. He would taste the wine to make sure that it wasn't poison, but then he would sit down with the king, and they would have dinner together and conversation together. So he is a very close counsel. The king in this case is the Persian king Artaxerxes, this man in verse 11. And his nation was very powerful at this moment in time, around the 400s B.C. And it was under him that the Jews were currently displaced. And as a close confidant of the king, Nehemiah is not only deeply distressed about the news that the wall no longer stands and is continually uh, eroding, but he feels that he has to do something about it. This news has come to him by no accident. What is he going to do? Well, he prays. And though this prayer is around 2,500 years old, It's incredibly relevant to our lives today. And I want to just give you a couple of reflections. The first is we see the tension of the story lies in Nehemiah's response to this distressing news. He's presented with a very big problem. Now, for most of us, when we hear something distressing, something troubling, when we have a problem, we want to fix it. We want to immediately do something about it. We don't sit well with distressing, troubling news. 
We don't have patience with adversity. We want to get it out of our lives. So you're a salesperson and your sales figures are down. You got to do something about it quickly. A close friend is spreading rumors about you or misinformation, and you got to make sure that you follow up with all those people quickly. You're worried that your landlord is going to raise your rent beyond what you can pay. It's a very legitimate concern in our day and in our city. But when these things emerge, when they happen, we get busy. We got to fix it. We got to work the angles. And if we don't have any angles to work, we get distressed, we get despondent, we get distracted intentionally, or maybe we medicate. Well, Nehemiah hears some very distressing news. There's a big problem, and he prays, and he fasts from the month of Kislev in our passage, but then if you read on into chapter 2, you see that he prays from Kislev to Nisan, which is roughly four to five months. Four to five months. Nehemiah is a, a guy of some influence. He has the king's ear. But he doesn't receive the report and then run immediately to get an audience with the king and plead Jerusalem's case. He doesn't, first of all, work the angles. It would seem that of all people... God would be most interested in getting this wall reconstructed. It's His holy city. It's His name that's at stake. It's His reputation. But here, we see that God is at least as interested in the orientation of Nehemiah's soul as He is in solving this big problem and building this wall. Nehemiah will ultimately become the governor over Jerusalem, and he'll face almost constant danger from attackers outside, and he'll face setback after setback to reconstructing this wall. And so God is working not the angles, but he's working Nehemiah into a place of trust and dependency that will prepare him for this very difficult role. Now, sometimes, whether we like it or not, what interests God most in our lives isn't always the immediate resolution of whatever problem we are facing, whatever is pressing on our concerns. But what more interests God oftentimes is the reorientation of our souls. Sometimes we're not ready relationally, emotionally, spiritually for that thing that we want so badly, for that next stage in our career, that next step in terms of parenting the next season of life that we can see so clearly and we want so badly, if I could just get there. And oftentimes that's not what is immediately interesting to God. What He wants is to reorient our soul and prepare us spiritually, emotionally, relationally for that next season. And so what looks like slowness or reticence on His part may be, in fact, Him providing space for which we can be ready for that next season of life. But that brings up another point or another reflection. And it's how Nehemiah thinks about the ordering of events, that God is somehow an actor on this stage, that he is driving 
the events. Nehemiah's prayer is predicated on a very particular understanding of who God is and how God works in the world, or what we would conceptualize as providence. This prayer isn't just thrown out to whomever may be listening. This prayer is specifically to the God that he knows and that he is in relationship with and that in some way is governing the world. Two things about this. First of all, this relationship isn't casual, but it's covenantal. What does that mean? The Lord, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, we've talked about this in a number of different times and seasons that covenant is one of those words that you got to understand in order to understand the sort of theme and the thread of the Bible. If you're taking a test on intro to the Bible, this would be one of those words that's on the test, as they say. The professor prepares you ahead of time. This will be on the test. Well, covenant is one of those words, and it's an agreement between two parties that orders a relationship with promises that include blessings and curses. Now, we tend to think of contracts, but a contract is something that if you don't keep your end of the agreement, the other party is now free to default on theirs. But a covenant is more like marriage vows. You're making promises to keep even if the other person breaks the covenant. And it outlines how parties are to be faithful to the relationship. But the problem that Nehemiah sees is that one of the parties of the covenant has been vastly unfaithful. And not just sort of they fell into some kind of temptation. They had been walking away from the covenant, walking away from relationship with God and the life that he wanted for them for hundreds of years. And so Nehemiah sees this as a problem, of course. And so what does he do? Verse 6, I confess This is something that we do each and every week that we model because it's such an important part of the Bible's story and any sort of spirituality that rests in the Bible is confession. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself. Notice he confesses corporate sins first and then he confesses for himself. Myself and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So according to the terms and the warnings of the covenant, there were warnings in place that regarded if one party, that is the human party, failed to keep up their end of the covenant. And again, this isn't just a momentary fall into sin. This is long-term pursuit of a life apart from God, even though they were his chosen people that he loved gratefully. Well, there was a stipulation for chastisement, for discipline, for helping them see the consequences of their own sin and to draw them back. According to the warnings of the covenant, they had been scattered into the nations. They had been exiled by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and now the Persians. 
But you see, Nehemiah knows his Bible. And he knows what's in the fine print, if you will. Even though he knows that they've acted wickedly, that they have been unfaithful, he believes still in God's mercy and God's promises. Remember, you said this, God, that you would gather us back if we will repent and turn to you. And so like in a courtroom, he's saying to the court reporter, would you read the witness's words back to him? God, this is what you have told us, that if we'll repent, you will be faithful to your end of the covenant. God, these are your words. You will be faithful, get this, beyond our deserving, beyond how well the humans keep their end of the covenant, God will be merciful and he will keep his end of the covenant. And friends, that's grace. That's the gospel. Covenant and mercy go hand in hand, at least in God's understanding. It's so important. This is Bible 101, and you can't move to 201 and 301 and 401 unless you get this, that undergirds the words of the Bible. You can't take calculus until you do trig, right? I don't know if those two things actually need one another, but that's the order that you go in. And this is because if you open the Bible, so many texts that you read, the surface understanding is sort of quid pro quo. And it can be very confusing to think about God is a God of unending mercy, but here this verse sets it up as if I'm the one that's in control of my destiny, that if I blow it, then things go to pot. So many texts can be so difficult if we don't understand the subtext. If we don't understand that the underlying moral thread is always, always God moving toward His people in grace. That's the underlying thread. That's the subtext. So if you get to a place in your Bible, you're reading, and you think, this doesn't make sense, remember the subtext and put it in that context. God, in this circumstance, because of the covenant, would be judged fully righteous to walk away from Israel forever. They had been terrible, fickle, thankless children. But with God, mercy always trumps justice. God has covenanted with His people, saying that He will be faithful even if they are not. And that's the gospel, and that's the story of God. Now, maybe you're here and you're not ready to accept all of this. You're not ready to call yourself a Christian. But you've got to admit that this way of talking about God and spirituality is different. It's probably different from your process of self-evaluation that, if we're honest, generally leans towards the critical and the condemning. But it's also different than the way that we often hear Christianity talked about in our public conversation, that with God, mercy trumps justice, that He is always in pursuit of His people, that He is always, always seeking to give them grace beyond measure. In-town, friends, exists to tell a different story, and I hope that you're listening But there's a second thing that Nehemiah gets that it's 
not just that he pays attention to God's mercy and the fine print, but he also trusts in his power. Nehemiah is praying here for favor in the presence of this man, that is Artaxerxes, the king, the one who, humanly speaking, holds Nehemiah's life in his hands. Oftentimes, though, the cupbearer was a very close confidant of the king. If the cupbearer messed up, it was it was shutters off with his head. And so he literally did hold his life in his hands. He's the one that has already determined that we, we read in, or you can read in, I, in Ezra, that Jerusalem's walls will not be rebuilt. This was Artaxerxes making a ruling because he feared there were insurrectionists in Jerusalem. So this is a big ask on Nehemiah's part. He's the key, human speaking, humanly speaking, that is Artaxerxes. If he doesn't agree to this, Jerusalem is sunk because Persia is the power. If he doesn't give in to the request, Jerusalem is sunk. Nehemiah works for the king. He honors the king. He's not in denial in any way about the king's power and authority but he believes that there's a subtext to human life as well. He believes that ultimately it's not the Persian military complex that is going to assure or not the situation and the ask, that they're ultimately in control. What he sees is that God is ultimately in control of larger events. Now, I had a seminary professor who I have great respect for. I took probably more classes with him than anyone else, and he was teaching us about the sovereignty of God. And one time in class, he held up a pen and asked, if, in, if God is in control, does he control whether I drop this pen or not? And then he dropped it, and he said, yes, God is in control over whether his fingers moved. And it was a very memorable moment. And it seems logical, right? How can God be in control of larger events without being in control of the smaller events, the minutiae of life. But I think this goes a bit beyond what we can at least know from Scripture. We can logically deduce some things, but Scripture doesn't paint that sort of picture of God and causality. The Bible doesn't pull back the curtain, as it were, to show us exactly how the machinery of providence works or how God is sovereign, which the Bible tells us, and yet prayer works. And those two things both are true, that God is ordering the world stage, and yet we have choices that actually matter to our spirituality, to our destiny, to our actual daily lives. Nehemiah believes that the Bible just tells us that both are true that God is sovereign, and that prayer works. He sees the king's involvement as very crucial, and so he plots and he plans this interaction very carefully because he knows his role with the king, and he knows all of the factors. Yet at the same time, he sees Yahweh, God, as the one who has scattered Israel into the nations in an act of chastening, and who has the power to bring them back. And what we come to see is that there's always a third party 
involved in your life, in the life of the world. There's a gracious God, a powerful God, who also invites your prayers, who invites you into his presence to plead with him, to mourn with him, to pray and to ask for things that you see as important. He is powerful enough to determine the outcome, and his covenant faithfulness is stronger even than your sin and your failure. And this allows tremendous confidence and boldness before God and buoyancy in the face of what seems to be and appears to be setback. Nehemiah will have many of these as he seeks to rebuild this wall, but he's buoyant because he knows who God is. He believes in God's promises. Nehemiah's actions embody this duality, this dialectical relationship between prayer and action. He prays for four months, and then he goes and talks to the king. Artaxerxes gives him permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild his wall, but he personally, he has to still rally the troops. He still has to get them motivated and keep them motivated to actually put stone upon stone. He says in chapter 4 that when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, this is just a general list of all of the enemies, come to fight against Israel, we prayed to God that he would fight for us, and they posted a guard day and night with bows and arrows. I love that. Sometimes us Reformed folk need to get out of our heads that God's actions are not dictated by logic, but by covenant, by His promises, by who He says He is. By, and they're not dictated by what we can explain. He says, pray and do. Henri Nguyen says, prayer and action can never be seen as contradictory or mutually exclusive. Prayer without action grows into powerless pietism, and action without prayer degenerates into questionable manipulation. If prayer leads us into a deeper unity with the compassionate Christ, it will always give rise to concrete acts of service. And if concrete acts of service do indeed lead us to a deeper solidarity with the poor, the hungry, the sick, the dying, and the oppressed, they will always give rise to prayer. In prayer, we meet Christ, and in Him, all human suffering. And in service, we meet people, and in them, the suffering Christ. The suffering Christ did not enact just a theory. He did not just tell us or teach us or simply pray for us. It wasn't simply a spiritual rescue of the world, but an actual rescue and a physical one, an embodied one. In John 17, before the Passion Week, before he goes to the cross, he prays. For you granted him authority over all people, he's praying about himself, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. He prays before God. Like Nehemiah, he reminds God the Father of his promises and of his covenant. But then he acts. He goes to the cross and he rises again. And He is with you 
continually praying and acting on your behalf. He's the incarnation, you see, of that third party, of that subtext. We get to see the embodied promises of God in the suffering Christ. And therefore, your sins and your failures and your setbacks are not the end of your story. The end of your story is that you are a loved person. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you tell us that we are loved people in spite of all of the ways that we ruin our lives and ruin the lives of others, in spite of all of the ways that we would choose to pursue our own fancy rather than pursue the life that you want for us. I pray that once again you would stay true to your promises in a very real and concrete way, and that is to the people that are gathered here at InTown, to us. Lord, I pray that we would believe in your covenant promises, that we would seek you out, that we would pursue big things because of you and because of those promises, and that you would empower us and you would establish the work of our hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.